micro nanobots go into the body and deliver drugs at a very specific site. You can load stem cells into hydrogel and that can boost healing if you put them into aging muscles or into hearts. Put on a, an exoskeleton as a nurse and it helps you to lift an older person. You're listening to Widdishin's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and The Book Depository. And the bookies theme we're reflecting on this week is Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan. And some of you are probably familiar with Altered Carbon because it's now a TV series on Netflix with season three just being announced. The book is set in the future, in which interstellar travel is facilitated by transferring consciousness between bodies, or in the book, they're called sleeves. You can find the link to Ultra Carbon the book in the show notes. My name is Amy Rose, and in this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Fiona Kerr, who's consuming interest in the science and power of human cognition and connectivity continues to develop after more than 35 years of working in various sectors in Australia and abroad, including power generation, automotive manufacturing, defence, pharmaceuticals, government and artistic organisations like Cirque du Soleil. Dr Fiona Kerr is one of my heroes. She is an incredible human being. Our paths continue to cross with the most recent being the Bionics Queensland Challenge and Cortex Brainwave Technologies in which Casey Fluger and myself founded We're Developing a Brain Computer Interface and Dr Fiona Kerr was one of the judges and unfortunately because we knew each other she couldn't judge our category even though she herself had developed a brain computer interface. So let's have a listen to my conversation with Dr Fiona Kerr. Fiona, I just want to say first, thanks so much for coming on Wittishins. You've been so busy. You've been all around the world in the past couple of months speaking. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. You're welcome. Okay, so Fiona, I'm, I'm just going to start with it. I've got a few pages. We've, we've chat briefly before and I really want to talk about these topics, particularly cyborgs and the positive spin on being a cyborg and the benefits it is going to have on the world and you're the perfect person to do this I think so firstly before we start can you tell me a little bit about your journey how you got to where you are now and what you're actually doing right now I know there's a lot but what you're doing now right okay so well gosh then I worked for 30 years in various industries, so mining, power generation, uh, general motors, pharmaceuticals, and I kept seeing trends. So I was often mediating. I was often talking to people around, you know, technology coming into those places. Um, I was industrial relations manager in, in those kind of organisations. And so a lot of my work was a strategy and working directly with the guys on changing how they did things and what they did and how to use technology well and making sure that the tech did what it was supposed to do as well as in actually making the work better or easier and anyway that was to me that was part of how you built adaptive companies and adaptive ways of looking at things so at 50 I had 
been working in a number of organisations, working with the CEO and the whole organisation to make it adaptive. And I saw trends and thought, okay, I can either do another organisation or I can go and dig and see what's going on. So I went back and did a double PhD and it was in complex systems engineering, but that was what do we build? But the other half was cognitive neuroscience of how do people think? And what I didn't think about was coming up through the middle of that, because you look at artificial neural networks and organic neural networks, was AI. And so apart from working sort of in organisations and and with engineering, defence and medicine, and also looking at human interaction because of the cognitive neuroscience and realising more and more that using technology, we can see how people synchronise and how we electrochemically resonate and synchronise with each other, how we change each other's brains and bodies. I also worked with the the medical health sciences group and did a a study on the neurophysiological impact of touch and eye gaze on healing and the therapeutic relationship. So a lot of my work became, okay, yes, that's how we can build a robot or that's how an app might work for depression or preventative health. This is the neurophysiology of the human. And that means that that won't actually work the way that you think it would work. So how do we change that to take into account the either the physiological interaction and interconnection with humans or so that the technology doesn't override or block the unique capabilities of human brains and, and connectivity that, that offer things to do with even being very well, let's see, efficient and effective in ways that technology cannot be. So how do we get the best of both worlds? How do we get the unique properties of both technologization and human capacity and maximise that and then create in the middle, create a quality partnership? Um, so that was, I guess, the journey. And then I ended up a few years ago in Finland talking at the Futures of Complex World conference and working with VTT, which is their technology arm on giving them kind of the neuroscience angle. And then I talked to the new head of the AI steering committee, um, national steering committee, and ended up advising um, there as well. And so it's been a really interesting journey. I spend my time now with the Neurotech Institute. So it's quite difficult from inside a university to try and work across a lot of silos because they don't play together well. So I was very busy and very tired and And also really wanted to do some truly multidisciplinary work and research. And I still have a foot in consulting, so I still spend a lot of time in speaking or consulting in organisations around, well, how do you get ready for the next 20 years? What does that mean um, technologically, but also what does it mean for, you know, the human aspect? So, again, how do you choose that quality partnership instead of just taking the, the latest technologies because you're told that it's going to make things cheaper and... If you hitch your wagon to the technology that just allows you to digitise stuff, then quite often it's the dumb AI and you'll go down the road of not keeping up with the high quality that AI can offer. Um, But if you think about how do I get quality partnerships between the gifts of a human and the gifts of awesome technology, then you go down a completely different road. And I guess that's one of the things that we talked about when we had our first discussion, that if you want to do something that's truly wonderful in terms of a human-centric question, so how do you help someone 
do something? How do you assist medically or, you know, material-wise? Or how do you make the world better? Then technology, the kind of things that we can design in technology are just transformative. And so technology is very good at that. But if you ask the question, how do I make money or how do I benefit from technologizing, digitizing something, and even to the detriment of others, then again, technology is absolutely awesome at doing that. It's a goal-driven optimist. It's, it's, it does what we shape it to do. So the deal for me, I guess my crusade, is that the question shapes the system. And if we ask good human-centric questions about the technology, then what we're going to get is really wonderful uses and brand new ways of thinking of technology that we haven't thought of before. But if we only ask questions through our profit, then that's where we go. That's what I want to talk to you about, the human-centric angle, because there is, uh, you know, as we know, there's bad stories about cyborg Oh, becoming a cyborg when we know that being a cyborg I think is just having a little bit of technology attached to our human body. Now I just want to talk to you really about some of the things that are going on now to help humans. So there's people who have a disability, there's people who have issues like with their eyes and with their limbs and I'm just wondering if you can share some of the things that are going on now where humans have benefit from having this technology embedded into or on their human body. Yes. So we can do fantastic things from even starting off, even from outside the human body. So now we can use things like photonics because light is so soft and gentle but so amazing in the way that we can, we can use its capacity that we can use light for things like, oh, getting rid of plaque on neurons for fixing hearts and for doing a number of things inside the body that, yeah, that, that create a lot less damage than other types of going into the, you know, the body and, and I guess interceding. We use, can, can we use sound and to look inside living cells and see what's wrong in order to then be able to create improvements. We can use tiny little micro nanobots to go into the body and deliver drugs at a you know a very specific site there's some that act like origami so they open up um, depending on the, the dosage and the amount of a drug that you want in a certain space they'll, they'll unfold to let out that amount of drug and they're absolutely tiny and they're even managing to to join them together like little trailer trucks <laughs> so that they can oh. deliver different types of things in at this kind of nano level. They've got little particles that you can put inside now to, to control internal bleeding. They've got, you've got everything from hydrogel robots, which can catch fish and, and can swim and uh, can be micron wow. scale, so they can deliver drugs internally. They can be grippers inside the body that then dissolve after they perform surgery for you or hold something oh. together. Um, what? You can load stem cells into hydrogel and that can boost healing if you put them into aging muscles or into hearts. You can shore up damage in hearts because it can strengthen them. You can drug infuse them and, and put nanoshells around them and that's for cancer treatment. You can inject them to stop bleeding and you can make adhesive hydrogels and that helps tissue generation. And, and yeah, it's just, it, 
they're a part of soft robots. So soft robots are a completely different way of thinking about robots. Um, they are things that can have everything like little peristalsis activators to make soft motors or they can do all sorts of things inside the body or around the body because they're biocompatible. They're soft and they're wet. They're highly stretchable um, and they're getting stronger. So they are really amazing in terms of being able to help both inside and outside with um, various things around the body. If you want hard exoskeletons, then we've got all sorts of, uh, the easiest way to think about them is they're wearable robots. Mm. So they can help people walk, they can help people lift things. Even if you're um, fit, then things like robotics with aged care, I work in, in that and people just think of the robot nurse, you know, and no one coming near a person anymore. But there's all sorts of robotics that assist in other ways. So you can put on a, an exoskeleton as a nurse and it helps you to lift an older person or you can, you can have problems walking and if you now wear the much lighter um, exoskeletons, then it can help you to, to walk, it can help you to be ambulant, but also what that does is it retrains the neurons and the nerve parts and the muscles to be able to learn again how to walk and um, so it, it acts like a, if, if you like, a siren call sometimes to for things to come back and work the way that they used to so that they can regenerate in the right way. There's things that you put on eyes. So there's a new lens, a robotic lens in the eye. And the nice thing about it, or that the good thing health-wise, is that you put it on instead of the lens. So when you take the lens off and put this on, then you don't have things like cataracts and you don't have failing sight. But as with a lot of these things, there's some it's not so much the technology that we've got brilliant, you know, scientists and um, engineers and technologists that look at the technology. So many things are possible, but what we have to do is get our act together with things like the legal aspect. And so, for example, with the, the bio lens that we talked about before, so the photonic lens, that uses a tiny camera. So the good thing is that it can improve your sight. You can kind of hone in on what you need to see. But then you've got really interesting problems coming up because what they want to then do is to say, okay, so how do we stream a phone or how do I show, how do I flick what I'm seeing to your eyes because I could put what's on my camera um, onto into the camera of your eye. Um, so the positive might be that I can show you directly through your eyes if I'm in a different place. The downside of that, of course, is that you can get biohacking, which means someone can either be watching through my eyes or they could turn my eyes off and I can't see. Mm. <laughs> um, another aspect of that is who owns the data. So some countries, which is why we need a global way of looking at this, because in some countries currently that data would be owned by the company that made the lens. In other countries it would be owned by the government and in some countries it would be owned by me, but not many. And those are the kinds of things that we haven't got our head around and that's the sort of stuff that the Finnish group you know, that we talk about then because we need to be able to think, all right, so what has to sit above these fantastic capacities um, for us to be able to have a global agreement on how things are used and when they're used and where they're used and a set of values around 
what we do in terms of the, the use and abuse of things like that. There's, I wanted to talk to you also, I had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. She was talking about having gut feelings and how important they are to her. And, and I mentioned that the brain is all over our body. It's not just in our mind. And also we had the conversation last time where you taught me a few bits and pieces about the human body. That was like an epiphany to me about how difficult it would be to have a human brain interface because the human brain isn't just in our head and it's all over our body. Can you share with our audience a little bit about that and perhaps why the human brain interface is going to be a bit difficult and where our brain is also located in the body? <laughs> okay, and a short answer to that. The second bit is we don't know yet. We're, we're learning more and more <laughs> that, you know, you have kind of this dispersed nodal system, which works really efficiently if you think about it. So if you have an adaptive system, which we are, we are a complex adaptive system as humans, then one of the things that makes them adaptive is that they have both top-down and bottom-up capability. And so what that means is you have the top-down rules that shape what the system does, but you also have what's called nodal capability. So at localised areas, you have self-managing and self 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 um, generating and also self-fixing kind of aspects to adaptive systems. So one of the lovely things about the human body is that, yes, we have kind of a central nervous system brain. So so if I take you back then, at about week six of gestation, you have something called the neural crest and it divides into two main systems and one of them is the central nervous system and the, the large brain that sits in our head. And then the second one is the enteric nervous system with the gut. And they are two, you can call them two kinds of brains. And one of the reasons is thought to be that the day you're born, if we just relied on the, the large brain that sits atop our bodies, um, which is it takes a long time to learn and it takes a long time to get programmed. So the first two to three years of our lives our brains are washed with BDNF and we're just mapping everything and we're differentiating our brain and learning, then you'd starve to death really fast. So the enteric uh, nervous system has the, the gut, which is about a million and a half neurons, and, and it knows how to take in food, um, how to make neurotransmitters out of the already. There's, there's a level of microbiomes that's living in the enteric nervous system, the enteric gut, and and it can digest food and help you grow and survive. Um, but the fascinating thing about that is that we are hosts to bacteria. I think we can, so we can't make all of the chemicals we need for our brain to work really well. So we host billions of these bacteria that act like little factories that create the chemicals or the long fatty acids or all of these different kind of things and the neurotransmitters like little Lego blocks that send them up to the brain and, and the brain can work very efficiently. But that still means that what we're doing is we're making sure that the central brain, the, the large brain, works really well. And even the way that we keep information in that brain, it's it's dispersed in ways we do but don't understand. We understand chunking and we understand memory, but we, there's still ways that we you know, keep information 
kind of sitting on fat and memory that's really difficult to understand. But we've also got neurons all around our body because there's a lot of things that can be done efficiently without having to go back to central control all the time, which becomes a bottleneck if the rest of the body can't do anything without sort of going through that or checking with it. So we have, as I said, about a million and a half neurons that we know of in the gut. We have neurons, we now know that we have neurons in the heart. We certainly have neurons in large muscle masses. We have them dispersed in various parts around our body. And so what that allows is for a different kind of nerve actuation and electrical activity, but it also allows for some of those things to largely happen in those areas or in those organs. And I think what you and I also talked about was a few years ago, there was a theory around, I think in Russia, they were planning potentially to take a person's head and transplant it onto another person's body and to see basically if that brain worked in the new body. So apart from all of the problems around that massive type of transplant, even if you could get that to work in terms of that kind of medical swab, what's fascinating is the amount of information that resides in those different parts of the body. And we don't actually know just how much that holds in terms of how we think, who we are. So there's tales of people getting new eyes and actually having other people's vision. There's tales of people getting new hearts and having a new way of interacting in the world. And there's there's all sorts of fascinating things that used to just be, yeah, sure, that's, that's just how you feel. But there's more and more information around to say that it's a lot more complex than we thought it was. That's what fascinates me because there's a li- there's a few myths and I do get excited about the possibilities of things like brain transplants and downloading information from one system, human system to another. But I do like the reality as well that some things are going to take a little bit longer than other things. But either way, becoming a cyborg is pretty exciting. <laughs> um, so... I also want to talk about, so with these exoskeletons, so there's another concern that I have and I and I guess it's a bit of an ethical dilemma. People who have disabilities, they're going to have an option to add a robot limb or to have a bionic eye or something like that. But what about when we want to just have a human upgrade? And, you know, there's a few things that I might like. I, I would like to see through walls or I mean maybe I don't I'm not I'm not a a pervert but like there's some things that some people might like like builders might like to be able to see through walls and look at cables and things like that but what do you think is going to happen with that when people just want an upgrade and you know will there be an imbalance will there be ethical dilemmas and what are your thoughts on that yes so humans have always been really good at getting very excited and then having to deal with the fallout that we don't think about. So technology is bright and shiny and we love it. And because it, again, it's a complex problem, it means that there's a lot of unknown unknowns. And and I must say some countries are better than others and some companies are better than others, some people are better than others at thinking what questions should we be asking that we're not? Um, what else do we need to think about? 
and that's again I guess I, I feel like a broken record but it gets back to the are we asking the human-centric question you know mm. so when you design something the first thing is why are you designing it so if you're designing the cyborg limb to assist someone who's lost the capability to use that limb then you will tend to create something which is going to be human-centric it's going to be useful there's always going to be people that will then think about how to use it for gain or how to use it for other nefarious kind of purposes because again that's human nature so one of the things that we always have to think about is so what can go wrong well how do we need to keep this safe for people you know and what do we need to think about and at what level so does this need to be just something that we think about locally does it need to be a national thing does it need to be a global thing and more and more of course with ai it's global and we're really not good at that we're terrible at aligning say i don't know five values across the world that are going to underpin an algorithm for general artificial intelligence at the moment you know it's almost impossible we're not very good at it so yes there are always issues and there are things that become really interesting so i was in canberra last no two weeks ago one of the things i was doing was talking to to someone in defense about exactly this about augmenting humans and then when they leave a situation like that what do you do do you de-augment them and how much do you augment a human and what do you augment a human for and so even if we take that if we have a soldier for example it's one thing to do what the movies talk about you know and make this kind of cyber cyborg robot killer um which we, we can't do anyway but if we could then there'd be an awful lot of restrictions to that but it's completely different to be able to do things like augment the capability of someone that has to walk miles with really heavy packs with something like a knee to hip exoskeleton which then allows them to carry that pack at almost no uh, weight now that's a really sensible way of augmenting through exoskeleton if we want to then put that inside the person so that they can walk for ages that's that's much more difficult and it's much harder and so and one if they leave is not very difficult to deal with at all but the other one becomes a whole discussion around what's the status of that person with that capacity now so again it's it's really interestingly um messy and we don't very often stop and think through some of those things because we always will be behind the eight ball of using any form of technological augmentation um negatively and it's one of those things that if if that stops you then you also stop things that are going to generally be very positive for people when we talked about the the eye um that robotic lens um is the potential for biohacking a reason not to make a robotic lens so that billions of people can see, you know see better and yeah, it's an interesting conundrum that comes with being part of the human race but we have to be cleverer about how we go about that and in the first place you ask the questions have the drivers that are you know positive my second last question now the bionic eye you you have touched on it because or the lens you'll be able to maybe perhaps buy a hack but i want to probably perhaps not talk about that because i know there's going to be uh, a lot of conversation about that anyway in the future but 
how does that actually work? I mean, how does the human eye share that with the brain and perhaps even share it with an outside source? You know, to transfer, how might that even work? That depends on the way that the information is collected, created, decoded. Um, so one of the things that becomes really interesting is, again, what's the technology that you use to power something like the camera, um, the capacity for um, a memory, as in a technical memory, to be able to record um, or not. So one of the problems is when you first design something like that, then the, you need to potentially put quite a lot of capabilities into it so that you can do things and deploy it in a different way than you originally can think about because you can you can upscale it or you can sorry not upscale it you can oh, I'm stuttering let me think about what I'm saying instead what I'm trying to say is if we think about it in terms of something we know so say you've got a an IT implementation in your company and you get this big new software system and they turn on about 40% of it often and leave about 60% so that you have to pay for all of that extra capability but it's still mm. in there it just needs to be turned on. Yeah. So with a lot of things, like something like a, um, the, the bionic lens, the way that it's made, there's going to be potential for a lot of trading up to it being able to do different kinds of things with the basic pieces, the basic mechanics that make up that eye. Um, but whether they either get turned on or the way that they get used becomes the point of discussion. And sometimes what we get is the very basic minimum is made because it's cheaper and easier. But if you get the high-quality, flashing version of something like a bionic lens being made, then you either just make the high-quality lens and have a decision about what you turn on and only perhaps only a small percentage of the population can use it, or you make cheap ones and expensive ones and you can get the cheap ones out to more people and you have more dilemmas around the expensive ones. So do you think I might be able to go and get one of these bionic lenses? How long will it take for me to be able to, do you think, for me to be able to go and get a bionic lens? So I might be proven wrong here, but the what I read about it again about three months ago, they were looking at a couple of, between one and two years for the, the basic, but that's still pretty fancy, uh, bionic lens, and then they were looking at, I think three to five years around some of the things like phone screening and actually swapping images. Uh, and so that seems to be the timeline a few months ago. Wow. Okay, so that's really soon. That's actually yeah. really exciting as well. It's going to, wow, people are going to have to make a little bit of a, a shift in their thinking about about how fast things are moving. I have one other question about the mesh. The mesh that you can have injected into your body for this exoskeletons, I think it was. So what they tried, Don? No, no, you pl please, Dad. I want to hear all your thoughts on this. So what they, um, one of the beautiful things that they tried, so there's a lot of wonderful, wonderful things done with, within medicine, right? So and that's a really interesting, I guess, statement overall is the medical field is one of the things that is truly human-centric because what people are trying to do is fix people, make them better, 
And so whether you're talking about microbots that have little, you know, cilia and change the way that we take medicine or oh, there's just incredible things that you, that you put inside the body. There's little batteries now that, that then would power parts of what you would then put as injectables or implantables. There's, and, but again, you can turn them off. <laughs> um, but, mm. but, but we've got electronic hearts now and you can, you can biohack them. So, so that that's always going to be an issue. It doesn't stop us actually making those wonderful things. But what, one of the things that was being tried was looking for a way to be able to physically, let's say, um, bridge a break in something like a bone, a spinal column. And so there's been some beautiful work around a mesh, which is a gold-based mesh because it, it doesn't get rejected as easily. And now more and more they're looking at hydrogel uh, because they're able to make hydrogel more hard. It's very stretchable, but they're actually being able to make it tougher because at the moment, hydrogel is weak and brittle, but that's changing. So what they were doing, so I wouldn't be surprised if you get hydrogel nanostructures that you can inject around breaks. Um, but what they did was they got this beautiful mesh and, and in, injected it, so you can imagine how fine and small it is, into a mouse with a broken back and wrapped it around the spine of the mouse and um, and the mouse was able to walk. So... So the mesh wrapped around the spine as yes. just all by itself? And well, they, they wrapped it around. So you can, they, yeah. you have to do microsurgery. And you wrap yeah. this, so it's a little cylinder. You create it into a cylinder and then you put the cylinder into an injection. You inject it, wrap it around, and it's shaped to wrap around the spine. And what then happens, because we are so beautifully plastic, so we talk about uh, neuroplasticity, well, a very similar thing, when we fix parts of us that break, so what you do is hold it. It's why you, you splint bones. It's why you, you do all those sorts of things because when you can get them mm. in a position where they can mend again, then they can join up. So this mesh allows a really strong exocasing that then lets the bone fuse back together again and lets nerve fibres grow again and there's other things that you do to to make sure that the nerve fibres grow, you know, in the right way and connect to the right ones. But what you then got have is not just the area that is now fixed but might potentially still have a weakness, but you've got it wrapped on the outside to make it extra strong. And it gets held together internally because there's no way that you can splint up, you know, a broken spine in that way normally. So... Those sorts of things. So I, th I think I first read about that probably, oh, probably five years ago. I think I first read about that. But it's really exciting. The more that you think about the types of materials that, with, within the last five years, things like the stretchable electronics and the, as I said, the the um, tougher mechanical capability in the hydrogels. Because um, what you can, the hydrogel robot now. And you can get a micron scale swimming bot in, inside your body, um, or you can get a soft little jellyfish <laughs> um, that can be a, quite a, a stronger and stronger robot in, in water. Um, but those sort of things can then become um, all different kinds of, of ways that we can strengthen up parts of the body or deliver things into the body. Yeah, so it's just the materials are a fantastic area that are coming on in leaps and bounds. 
whether it's inside the body or outside the body. I'm even thinking of things like concrete. I think concrete's really cool. And what you get now is is you get self-clean, you know, there's a potential to have self-cleaning concrete and rubbery concrete and and there's you can put a, a little bacteria in concrete so that which only comes to life with oxygen. And so you have um, asphalt, sorry. So if you have a road of asphalt and then you get a crack in the asphalt, that lets in oxygen, which then gets this bacteria to grow and it self-seals that asphalt crack. No way. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. It wow. It's, it's really fantastic. They're looking at things like wrapping seeds. If you've got really salty soil, so some places in the world where they've got high salt content in the soil so that they can't grow seeds very well you can they're looking at a bacteria laden silk coating that goes around the seed and so then they can grow in the the high soil at salt soil and they looking yeah there's another one i think raytheon is looking at i was reading just earlier on they're looking at a bacteria that can locate buried explosives i think how amazing that is now that's something that yeah yeah Oh that's the sort God. of thing that's fantastic. It's the sort of thing that has that really positive, you know, what, how can we help with these huge areas on, in some of the countries where there are explosives that take, feed off children or, or, you know, that kind of thing. And if you can get that bacteria that can locate them, then it's a wonderful thing. So those sorts of things are just fantastic. Oh, oh my, you just blew my mind. I wasn't expecting that. I can't wait to tell <laughs> my partner about it. And I've been in the construction industry for like a while. So I, that's exciting. Um, maybe I've been, I haven't had my finger on the pulse as much as I should have. One last question, Fiona. It's a question that I ask all of my guests. If you can imagine 50 years from now, what do you think will exist for us that we really couldn't imagine? right now so how do you think life will be oh goodness my trouble is like i'm um, (laughs) I'm thinking of so many things now um you know (laughs) do you mean materials photonics transport and and you know um, so in 50 years time i mean i'm even thinking of things like so I was just oh, five years, yeah, laid on me. Yeah, would say yeah, five years because I was just looking at the Porsche and Boeing uh, commuter urban air motility, you know, flying cars that they're, they're working on at the moment. And um, so I, I guess that can you talk about these flying cars? What were you going to say? <laughs> that's cool. But again, that's the sort of thing. So maybe my answer to uh, yeah. So what they're looking at is, I think it's called urban air mobility. It's a new area, uh, or mobility. Sorry, a new area that's being looked at is urban air mobility. I keep wanting to say mobility because I'm thinking of Cilia now, and um, because I was also looking at underwater changes um, in things. So what they're looking at is. Yes, there's a bunch of stuff being done with autonomous vehicles. There's a bunch of things being done with trying to find really small ways to get around. But, of course, there's also a whole area that are looking at taking the the transport system off the ground. And so that's what a bunch of people are doing at the moment. And, and I guess that example takes us maybe into where I would go with your question. So... For me, there's a number of things that we we need to be thinking about in concert. So we've got, as we can see, 
we've got technologies that are coming together. It's sort of and going ahead in leaps and bounds. So, and and they are fantastic in what they can do. And so internally, uh, even when we get back to your question about cyborgs, is a cyborg someone who has muscle-powered biobots inside them or has little batteries that they've swallowed that then, you know, powers their heart um, or has the, the lens that we've talked about? Or are they people that have assisted whole limbs? Like what is a cyborg is something that we consistently now have discussions on what level of capacity improvement means that we become this kind of cyborg. And I think maybe we'll get away, hopefully we'll get away from that kind of term because it, mm. I think it confuses us more than it helps us. And then there's, so inside the body, there's an awful lot of things that we're going to be able to do more about. So we've got tiny little 3D printed medical cameras from, that we can syringe in. We've got a number of things that we can do inside the body. Outside the body, we have a number of things that we can put on the body now that help. And they are, whether they're exoskeletons because parts of our body don't work or they are to assist, whether it's walking, lifting, it will be probably flying, those sorts of things. So wearable robots in all sorts of ways that very often we'll be able to go into the work if we need it and we can, we can put them on and they'll help us do our work. But there are other things that have been sort of grafted into us and onto us even the cochlear implant, those sorts of things that have been around for many years. But then if we go bigger than that, it's how are we using the interfaces between the technologies? So are we going to have their family box? How much are they going to be part of the environment inside the house or what are we going to use them for? And again, mm. um, we get back to we've got to be really careful because it's, I do work with an advised robotics companies and some of the small new ones are really interested in the neurophysiology of the connection and interaction between the human and the, the family bot or the, the care bot. And I'm doing some work right now on how the brain changes between looking at people that you trust and looking at your, your, you know, your trusted robot. And we're even doing some work around complex decision-making um, do you make a different moral complex decision with Ooh. another human being around than just with your trusted autonomous robot? That's another, that's another project that I'm halfway through for the Department of Defence in the US. It's fascinating. Well, Fiona, that's time today, unfortunately, because I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to coming to your house in Adelaide and sitting down and picking your brain with a glass of wine <laughs> one day. That would be wonderful. I feel, <laughs> I feel really sad that I, I can't have a a proper DNM. But um, anyway, th thank you so much, Fiona, for chatting with me. I really, really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode with Dr. Fiona Kerr. Until next time, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Stay safe, enjoy the company of your loved ones, and enjoy the rabbit holes.